Happy New Year and Happy Valentine's Day from me at The Reset Rebel. And I've been wanting to come back to you this year with something a little bit special. And after taking a reset myself and trying to practice what I preach over the new year, I realise so much has changed in the world since we launched three years ago that maybe we also need a little change of direction too. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of the island's legends and those connected to Ibiza in the last 92 episodes. So for me, it seems like it's time to go deeper under the skin of the real raw stories that gave this island its big old heart and filled it up with humans that are, in their very rebelliousness, some of the most unique and inspiring, not to mention intriguing characters I have ever encountered. So what better way when the world feels like it needs a collective hug to start with the one man in history I believe did that pretty well with his words, his lyrics and everything he stood for on stage. And that man was Robert Nestor Marley, a man who graced these fine white sands back in 1978 for a very special one-off gig. It was a full moon, beautiful weather and in the world we imagined that it was magical magical. Even uh, Bob uh, later told me for him it was really an experience he never expected it's going to be like that because he never did a concert before in a war ring. Jose Pascual there, president of the DJ Awards, who we'll be hearing so much more from later on in the show as he was one of a group who got Bob over to the island his very first time on Spanish soil and also three years before he sadly passed away from cancer at just 36 years of age. So for me, this is a super special show to share with you and to come back into 2021 armed with because... For many, myself included, Bob symbolises hope. He even used to live at number 56 Hope Road in Jamaica before he, like so many of us who live here, had to jump ship from their homeland for one reason or another. But Bob was pretty much forced to flee his own island and head into exile in London right before coming here. Now, I guess partly because of this, Bob was a man who personified peace and his legacy was, and still is to this day, one full of beautiful lyrics all about this idea of one love, which is, of course, the theme of this podcast. But also what prompted me to think today is a good day to release our Reset Rebel comeback show, because no matter where you are in the world right now or what scenario you find yourself in, I really hope this show will lift you up and pop you back on your perch because that is kind of what reggae does and I've done nothing but listen to reggae lately and so I'm delighted to say that we've been given permission to share a copy of the original recording of that exact live show on June the 28th in 1978 and it was actually captured right bang smash in the middle of the crowd where it is let's face it always the best place to hang out It's not recorded live from the stage or pro style and it's definitely not been captured in the VIP either. All our interviews in this episode have also not been done in quality due to the circumstances. So today we're coming to your ears raw, rugged and rebellious. But it is the raw deal and that's the number one thing most people 
admired about Bob. I always say that Marley emitted an aura, an image, that is hard to describe. I always compared Marley with perhaps a contemporary dancer. You got hooked on watching him. For me, his movements were hypnotic. I suppose his music, his way of expressing himself, he was a person who had certain movements which reminded you of, I don't know, a person practicing contemporary dance. So yeah, it was a privilege because it is a rare thing for a Spanish or a Catalan photographer to document an international artist in such a way like I did, following him from the airport to the interview to the concert and all the rest. I've photographed a lot of big names and I tell you, having access like that is really difficult. Francesc Fabregas there, the man who was standing on the airport tarmac to greet Bob as he landed, and the only official photographer to get those iconic images. Lo que te comentabas a nivel cuando llega el avión en Ibiza en el aeropuerto. That entrance at the airport was something quite spectacular. The fact that a photographer could actually get onto the runway back then, that was something which these days would be completely impossible. I mean, on a journalistic level, to have the privilege of being there from the moment the plane landed and until they got onto the bus, it was something that nowadays would be totally impossible. Now what also feels totally impossible is that the plane wasn't searched upon landing, as rumour would have it, but Bob didn't come to the island on a private jet. He landed with Iberia and he was a modest man. So we'll be finding out more about that and the moment Bob touched down and hear the audio of his first words upon arriving. But first, we catch the very first track Bob Marley and the Whalers played after keeping the audience waiting for two whole hours. It was scheduled to kick off at eight o'clock and it actually didn't get going until more like 10 in true Ibiza style. But people in the crowd were cool about it as during that time at the old ball ring in Espritet, the whole of the newly released album at the time, Live and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy was continuously played to keep people amused. That is, until Bob finally appeared with this opening track of Positive Vibrations. Yeah. 
So the stage at the bull ring was pretty high at one end if you look at the footage recorded by TV Española at the time of the sound check. And there was an amphitheatre style set up for this very special concert. 
And that is exactly where I'm standing right now. But my big toes are actually touching the bottom of a brand new Bob Marley mosaic, which has been installed in what is now called Bob Marley Gardens or Plaza Despretet y Jardines de Bob Marley in Spanish. And the local residents actually voted for this new naming ceremony. So back in 2019, when this plaque arrived, that marked the end to a rather long an arduous and drawn-out process, as originally there were some big plans afoot for this historic spot. The Diario Ibiza newspaper reports that the most daring was that of the architect, Philip Rothier, who proposed to keep the building, or at least part of it, that was preserved from the original project by Rodriguez Arias and convert it into the Bob Marley Multicultural Forum. And I, for one, definitely wish that had actually come off. Um, but when the property was demolished in 2005 and under the mayor of Sico Tares, it was reported a year later on the site um, that there would actually be an underground parking lot and the design process would be chosen through an ideas contest. So none of that actually happened and the work was even awarded, but that company went bankrupt. So when the parking lot of Espratet, which surrounds it, was fixed, the site was cleaned up and some palm trees were planted. So you may wish the next time you're in town, if you haven't already, to visit this mosaic and peaceful place for a little spot or a little moment of what Bob might call meditation. When you get drunk, you don't really meditate. You just drunk and you feel miserable. Now, when we smoke, it, it makes you cool, you know, it, it, it stimulates your mind and makes you sit down and meditate. Instead, you get foolish, you sit down and then you can meditate and be someone. That clip, courtesy of TV Española. So, if you do fancy being someone, anyone for that matter, in a moment of escapism a la Bob, right here in this park, it is a good place to embark on a little trip to the Imaginarium. So I hope we can provide that exact space for you and hold it until the end of this special Reset Rebel One Love Valentine's Day edition. And I want to describe exactly what I can see standing here in what used to be the old bull ring. And in the corner, my favourite part, is a little tiny hemp shop called Trichome Abitha, which sells all sorts and is actually on Facebook as a garden centre, um, though mostly smoking tools and paraphernalia inside when I took a quick peek. It is definitely worth a look if you're passing, and it does obviously feel fitting to have um, a hemp shop here because Bob was not a drinker, as you heard from that clip. He was Rastafari, and I have no doubt plenty of booze was on sale that night in 1978. And Salute al Foster was probably also quite possibly the go-to cheersing method. But if you do come here, you just absolutely have to see this mosaic, which is 114 by 114 centimetres high and wide. Six little tiles are already missing from it, but it's actually not as big as I thought it was going to be. Um, but it is a gorgeous tribute from the Ibiza Arts and Crafts School, and it gives a real sense of occasion to the park entrance as you put your back to the Royal Plaza Hotel and face towards the sea, which I believe is also the direction Bob was facing when he played. 
And also, the date of the gig is printed in words on a plaque just underneath the mosaic in English, Spanish and Catalan. And to the right of me, on the floor, are painted the words, henceforth under a variable sky, which is a quote from the now-dead Ibiza poet Maria Villan Gomez, which again, as we know, that night, the sky was filled with a full moon. So first, let's get back to the music. Here's the next track in Bob's set, The Belly Full, But We Hungry.
Last weekend would have been Bob Marley's 76th Earth Strong or her 76th birthday. So it feels like a fitting moment to pay homage to a man who was for so many a hero in the classic mythological sense of the word. He came from such humble beginnings in Trenchtown where he grew up and was armed with bags of talent and strong beliefs in the hugely volatile place he had come from. They were the only weapons he had or wished to have in this world. Even walking here to this garden, I saw the battle scars of last year scrawled across a wall in graffiti right near Ibiza's marina, which read in big black letters, Black Lives Matter. And looking further into Bob's why to spread his message far and wide, which he was only really just getting started on at 33 years old when he came here to this island, it's clear he only wished for one love. Nice to see you and welcome to Spain. Rastafari. The first time you're playing in Spain is in an island, no? Yeah. First. Are you happy? Yeah, yeah, you know, really. So his very first words when he was met by journalist Ángel Casas of the Spanish TV show Pop Grammar on TV Española, where that clip came from, was Rastafari. Bob was dedicated to spreading what was essentially his religion. And as NME journalist Chris Salovitz says, part of his popularity was that he was a shining beacon, not just of hope, but also radicalism. His story is one of an archetype, which is why it continues to have such powerful and ever-growing residents even now. It encapsulates political repression, metaphysical and artistic insights, gangland warfare and various periods of an almost mystical wilderness in his homeland. His status today is that of a global icon, but in 1978, he was just rising to the very highest highs of his career. So the question remains, how did a tiny chunk of rock in the middle of the Balearic Sea land an artist like Bob? I asked president of the DJ Awards in Ibiza, Jose Pascual. Well, it was a lot of people involved in that. The, my my uh, relation with all the, the organization for uh, Bob Marley in Ibiza, it was because I had experience to do uh, concerts before. And I know a little bit about the laws, about you need, how much you need to pay to the Association of Artists the security, all these things, no? And uh, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, he asked me, please, if, if we, we, I can help him uh, with that. And uh, we had some, some, some meetings and we've been talking. But I cannot say I have any specific uh, role in that because nobody had uh, a specific role. We are, uh, if I am not wrong, like uh, five or six people I was not the person who has been contacted. I think the contact has been done through uh, Chris Wagwell, uh, the, the owner of the Island Records, who was the one uh, who was taking care of Bob Marley in Europe. And uh, they contacted him, and uh, apparently was not a, a, a big problem because in that time he had no any any gig, he had no any concert. He was not on tour. He was in London, and uh, he said, "Okay, well, let's go Ibiza." And I don't even think that he knows very well what it was Ibiza at that time. But uh, they, they explained it was a beautiful island where the hippie are, uh, and, and of course uh, it was the money involved there. But uh, it was not no 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 not much difficult. 
you need to remember it was the hippie time it's, and we did a lot of things used to, to, to we had we had uh, money we had uh, uh, no experience but some experience and uh, we want just to, to do it for ourselves and for the people of Ibiza.
concrete jungle there, a cover of the Whalers track, which to be fair, is really an apt description of Bob Marley Square or Bob Marley Gardens, where I'm standing for today's show to record this for you. And I've got to be honest, it feels drab compared to Bob's very short life, one in which he managed to create a legacy that already lasted almost three times longer than he was actually here with us for. But just like now, in these times, people wanted what he wanted. They wanted peace and love. They wanted to just get together and for it all to be all right, just like we do now. And one thing that definitely helped that whole melting pot of people from hippies, gypsies, movers and shakers to the rich and well-heeled of this island fit right in that night with the clouds of marijuana wafting over the bullring, often completely obscuring the full moon from view. And Jose Pascual tells us he didn't even get to see the gig at all. Because what happened, I was in the backstage, not even in the backstage, it was some part in the, in the bullring, because the governor of the island came there and asked for the, the who was responsible for the concert. The other Spanish guy was completely stoned. The British uh, guys, they don't even speak Spanish. And it was all the concert talking with this guy, that this guy, he was asking me to cancel the concert because everybody was smoking there in the bull ring and it was, that it was illegal. And I said, I don't gonna do that. I don't gonna cancel the concert for that. If you want, you go and do it. And I, I am not responsible for what, what can happen. Because imagine 4,000 people, very high, and somebody appears there and says, I'm sorry, we need to cancel the concert because uh, too many people is smoking and that's forbidden, it's against law, oh, come on. And I mean, all the concert uh, dealing with this, this guy. When you are in the middle of this situation, uh, a critical situation, you really, what you want to do is to save the concert and the concert needs to go on. Really, I was not uh, thinking about, I don't want to see the concert. I don't saw the concert, well, inshallah.
global music, a track which Bob explores the ideas of freedom and how the people were being stifled in Jamaica by police with curfews being imposed, roadblocks curbing the free will of those on the road, which sounds kind of familiar right now, right? And I think that was all part of Bob's appeal as a rebel. He refused to mould himself to his locale in Jamaica or to style himself on those in his neighbourhood or the gangsters he grew up with all around him. He rebelled against the norm and went the other way whilst living at Hope Road. And two nights before his biggest rebellion yet of playing at the Smile Jamaica gig after being threatened and told not to play by local gang members, he was shot. At 8.30pm on December the 3rd, 1976, seven armed men raided Bob Marley's house. He and the band were on a break from rehearsals at the time and Bob's wife, Rita, was shot in the head in her car in the driveway. The gunman also shot Marley in the chest and his arm. His manager, Don Taylor, was shot in the legs and his torso and Louis Griffiths, a band employee, took a bullet to his torso as well. Now, weirdly and quite unbelievably, there were no fatalities, which is nothing short of a miracle. So when he got to Ibiza and appeared on Pop Grammar on TV Española, where this audio is actually from, Angel Casas and Carlos Tena, the journalist interviewing him, didn't beat around the bush to get the music star to answer a few questions about why he was almost assassinated. Somebody said it was politically motivated, but and to me it was a misunderstanding. Can you tell us uh, what, uh, if you know, what is the reason the newspapers say that? someone tried to kill you. It was true that we never really get to really find out who it was. Despite attempts on his life less than two years before, Bob wasn't too concerned about any threats when he came to Ibiza, according to Jose Pascual. There was no, no security uh, like uh, it can be today with uh, bodyguards done, no, no, not at all. But Jose told me he did come to the island with some extra special people in his party of 19. He came with the musicians and also he came with his uh, chef and with his uh, spiritual advice and uh, some uh, lawyer. Yeah, he had, yeah, like 90 people, they come with uh, something like that. Yeah, it was a lot of people with him, yes. So a lot of people need a lot of space. So being as Bob was on this island for three days, he needed a pretty good pad for him and his crew to land. And Jose said he was not only responsible for being part of the team organising, but also sorting out where Bob stayed. It was in the way when you take the San, Ra- San Rafael to Santa Inés, like uh, a couple of kilometers in the right side, uh, a big, uh, if you think, a house comfortable for everybody uh, with pool and because it was already summer, it was in June. And uh, in the end, they spent only three days, no? But uh, everybody was there. In fact, myself, when I had the opportunity to meet him, he was there in this in this place because in the uh, the rest I don't had the opportunity to 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 talk to him. Only was there, and I remember well we we, we, we were talking a little bit, but not much because he was not a person to, uh, a big talker, and I don't know if he was very stone or what, but he was looked like he was out of. Of the situation, no. But uh, in the house, yeah, in the house, it was everybody was it was uh, stay there in, the, in this big house.
there, his fifth track, on that balmy night with his band The Wailers. And one of the tracks that feels so relevant now, even more so after last year's events and the way people felt after the death of George Floyd, which was experienced around the world. And the hangover from all of that is still lingering as we go into this year because change doesn't happen as fast as we would like. So much so that Bob wrote this track to show that he disagreed with racism because as long as there is racism, there will be hate. And as long as there's hate, there will always be fighting and fear and unjust deaths. And he saw a lot of that in his short life. As the son of a white father and a black mother, Bob was mixed race, and some people say that was quite tough for him. Bob was famous for saying he only had one ambition in this lifetime, all 33 of those precious years, and that was to see mankind live together. Black, white, Chinese, everyone. And right about now, I'm pretty sure that's all anyone is feeling, because being separated the way we have been this last year makes you crave togetherness in a way I think will be different to how we've ever experienced it previously when it does happen again. People have definitely had time to think and to process in this last 12 months. And personally, my biggest hope is that something incredible and so positive comes out of all of this segregation. And that is that we all give Bob's wishes not only some thought, but really celebrate the things we all took previously for granted. It's just a weird one to think in so many ways that Bob was even here in Ibiza on this island that musically has such a focus nowadays and has changed so much. Personally, I don't miss that. I had the, I was very lucky to, to have the opportunity to, 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 to live the moment where all these guys have been around and to be in contact with them and be friends. Because uh, I don't know if you know that I was part of the Ibiza Sound Studios. Uh, I was one of the, the, the investors of that. And I had the opportunity in that time to meet a lot of uh, rock stars, pop stars and all that. And well, it was a time that uh, like, well, was past and now it's other things. And now I meet other kind of people and other kind of situations. Oh, you're right. You get up, stand up. 
Get Up, Stand Up from Bob Marley and the Wailers live in 1978 here at the Bullring of Ibiza. And as the opening statement on the Wailers 1973 album Burnin', Get Up, Stand Up has become not only a signature song for its writers, but it's also gone on to endure as an international human rights anthem. The fact it stood the test of time speaks of the persistence of oppression and human rights violations in all forms throughout the world. You could also include that of the rights of animals because most Rastas were mostly vegetarian. And you have to laugh at the irony of where I'm standing and the very place Bob played because if you, like me, are not an advocate of violence against animals, the very idea of a bullfight makes you feel physically sick, you will be glad to know the bullring closed here more than three decades ago. The last bull to die in this arena was in September the 22nd in 1985. And after Marley played here, he went on to play several more gigs in bullrings around Spain. If you check out Instagram at The Reset Rebel, you can see photos of the ring exactly as it was in all its pristine glory back then. And as you've been hearing in the live tracks I've been playing, it was acoustically a magical place to perform to 4,000 people that were gathered here that night. Now, two gigs took place here before Bob came to Ibiza. Lole Emanuel, who composed and performed innovative flamenco music aimed at people who weren't really into flamenco music and were part of the so-called new flamenco movement. And the year before Bob played, in August, Eric Clapton was also flown in, both of which, Jose Pascual, who you've been hearing from, was responsible for. Well, you know, in that time we are very hippies. We were really, uh, we don't uh, have this perception of celebrities and all these things. And right now, you really, maybe you are very more concerned. At that time, in the island, uh, myself, I've been with Bob, uh, with uh, uh, Bob Dylan. I, I've been uh, later with Eric Clapton, with 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 other uh, celebrities like. Uh, Henry Moore, the sculptor, the Queen. Uh, I become very close friend of of, of, of Roger uh, and, and 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 other guys. It was it was not a big big deal even with uh, with people from 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 Led Zeppelin and that all these people who was around the island and. It was not, not a big, big thing for us. Oh, how we miss having fun at live gigs, hey? Well, this is part of the reason I wanted to share this story today as part of One Love on Valentine's Day. And because I just love this idea that a group of hippies back then just dreamed up this idea to fly Bob in for a night that for them, it didn't seem to be much of a big deal, even though he was paid 4 million pesetas. Um, And that's really interesting because this is the kind of music I know so many people on this island right now want much, much more of. Proper, big, iconic rock and pop music and acoustic musicians that play music that resets what this island is really known for and to attract a different kind of fan base or tourism. So let's get into it. What was it really like that night? My best memory of that night it was it was a full moon, beautiful weather, and in the full ring, imagine that it was magical, magical. Even uh, Bob uh, later told me, for him it was really an experience. He never expected it's going to be like that because he never did a concert before in a world ring. Later he did some concerts in Spain and it was in another ones, but in his life he never did 
in, in a place like that, around Rekno. It was his first time, and it was very magical, very, very special you know, to, to, to do a concert in a place like that. And the people in Ibiza, of course, imagine everybody, all the gypsy guys, crazy, all the smoking, dancing.
even if whizzing Bob Marley in from London was no biggie for the group of hippies who got him here to the White Island, one man felt completely differently, and that was the official photographer. Hola, uh, soy Francesc Fabregas, vivo en San Just, pueblo cercano de Barcelona. Hi, I'm Francesc Fabregas. I live in San Just, a town close to Barcelona, and I have dedicated my work to the audiovisual, although actually, right now, I am retired. But for many years, I photographed big international groups who came to Spain, above all, Barcelona. We're talking about people like Bruce Springsteen, David Bowie, Deep Purple, Queen, and Bob Marley also. Later on, I was involved with television in Catalonia as executive producer of cultural programs, and lately I've been organizing a photography festival in Formentera, which has been going for eight years. If you Google Bob Marley in Ibiza, some of the very first photos that come up are from Francesc. And I managed to track him down and get my good friend Andy Wilson to interpret his words for us because Francesc has described being assigned to this gig. And it was kind of a big deal for him. He wasn't just working. He was really there as a fan. And there was no doubt he felt a fair bit of pressure to take those shots. Before we start, I want to tell you that I accompanied a team from Spanish TV, whose director is a friend of mine, Angel Casas, who was the director and presenter, and we had made friends previously when we worked on a music magazine called Vibraciones. I accompanied them and they invited me to follow the whole process of what happened, With respect to what you were asking about in terms of when the plane arriving into Ibiza, well, that entrance at the airport was something quite spectacular. The fact that a photographer could actually get onto the runway back then, that was something which these days would be completely impossible. I mean, on a journalistic level, to have the privilege of being there from the moment the plane landed and until they got onto the bus. It was something that nowadays would be totally impossible. Well, as we all know, even getting on a plane these days is something of a privilege, let alone travelling somewhere to meet your actual hero flying in from Europe. And Francesc created a series of images at the airport that, just like Marley's lyrics, are etched into people's minds and hearts forever. In that moment, Back in those days, I hadn't been receiving major groups for very long. The fact that I had the opportunity to photograph Bob, well, you can photograph an artist that you might not like very much, so you won't really be that into it, but Marley, well, of course, in that moment I was very into his music. And in fact, I think his music is still very alive now. I think reggae is one of the most mm, alive genres of music that we've had throughout history, you know? And, I don't know, it was just incredible to have him there in front of me, you know? It's something that is really just difficult to put into words.
Oh my God. 
The images that came from the concert, you look at them and maybe you struggle to figure out which is yours and which was taken by someone else. But those images from the airport, they are truly iconic. They are images that weren't taken by anyone else, you know, they have great value to me. And well, they are images that have been pirated a lot, to the point where in the Facebook and Instagram accounts of Mali, you can find photos of that moment and no one asked me permission for them. But, you know, sometimes the world of photography is a little sad like that. Images are so easy to steal. I mean, from the moment they get onto social media, it's hard, isn't it? So, the only part of the story we haven't mentioned is, of course, the saddest part, that Bob was already sick when he came to Ibiza with cancer, a cancer that three years later eventually killed him. But again... It's kind of interesting to note that it emerged as a kind of skin cancer in his toe where he thought it was a football injury. He was a keen football player and you can actually see Bob having a kickabout in his beloved Adidas gear. He was actually sponsored by if you look around online. But when it was clear this was no minor issue, Bob refused to have part of his toe amputated as it was against his Rastafari beliefs. So I asked Francesc Fabregas how Bob looked when he arrived or how he seemed to him. I thought it was like a I think it would have been a year, a year and a half after they diagnosed him with cancer that he came to Ibiza. According to what I read, he had enough of what the doctors were advising him. And anyway, the most intimate and relaxed moment we had with him was with Carlos Tena and Angel Casas, the two directors of a programme from Spanish television called Programa, and they interviewed him at the place he stayed, on the island. So many people have described this interview as chaos, including Francesc, who witnessed the conversation, and it's thought that maybe Bob was a little bit under the influence at the time, but he did go deeper into those religious beliefs with the duo from TV Española, which I think here it is worth taking a little deep dive at this stage because I think it's testament to Bob's character and his strength of belief that he was actually willing to give up the chance of a long life to stick to his guns. And this is evident by his every word and his every action musically and in his own community in Jamaica. The Bible, you know the Bible? Yes, I know. I search to find out if the King of Kings and the Lords of Lords and the conquering line of the tribe of Judah is here on earth. The guys and promised that he would return. Now when I look, I only see one man. His name is Isle Selassie the first. And that is what it is. Yeah.
salido muchas veces, ¿no? Pero fue una entrevista muy, muy caótica. ¿no? I suppose that interview was very well known because it was very chaotic and let's say the guy had smoked a lot of marijuana. I remember that the journalist would ask him a question and he would kind of freak out and answer as if he was replying to a completely different question. That half an hour that we were with him, well, it was like he was in a different universe. It was the moment that we were with him the longest and very near to him. But yeah, I suppose all of that was the consequence of all the marijuana he was smoking.
The truth is that, well, if I was someone from the island of Ibiza, I could give you a better account. Of course, I'm the one who caught the flight over, made the report and left the next day. What I mean is, I didn't really live the experience directly. What I do remember is that there were complaints. Well, not complaints exactly, but people were saying that the tickets were very expensive. Perhaps it was, was one of the first major concerts to happen on Ibiza. I mean, they were wanting to organize concerts on the island, but what happened was that the promoters made losses putting on this concert, and after that, they stopped doing more of them. I think the ticket price was a thousand pesetas, around six euros these days, which right now is nothing. But in those days, it was quite a bit of money. I mean, this resistance on the island, all I can say is that the same happened all over the world when people started putting on big concerts. And it happened also in Barcelona. A giant group comes to perform and it doesn't sell out. There are still tickets. It's exactly what happened when Bruce Springsteen came to perform in Barcelona in 1981. Well, in a venue that fits 7,000, perhaps, there were about 5,000 people. So as it only seems fitting, Robert Nesta Marley was the last man to play the Plaza de Toros before it got torn down and actually became a real area that perhaps wasn't the most pleasant to hang around in in town. And you could even ask, maybe that was when the future of this island's music scene was forever changed, destined to head towards the more disco era that followed and one-man bands like DJs. But wading through all the accounts of that night... There is no denying it is a memory that sticks in the minds as a historic event in Ibiza that changed people's perceptions of what could be possible here and photographed. Francesc Fabregas also felt the same. I think getting access to these big names is even more difficult nowadays. In those days, when I was at the height of my career, there were four of us photographers. Now maybe there are 45,000. And I suppose that my sensibility as a photographer was strong for this job because I was really into the music. Now, well, Bruce plays and it's a sellout and, well, it's like that. So it relates to what I was saying before. Within music culture, we sometimes define pop music as modern music. But, of course, within pop, there are many subcategories, and reggae has something special about it. It's a very rich genre of music. These days, I enjoy listening to reggae every now and again, but I don't so often listen to music that you'd classify as pop or pop rock, you know, like Queen, Bruce, David Bowie, etc. For working too, to lift my spirit, I prefer reggae to the other types. Perhaps it's a question of taste, but anyway, I think the important thing is that reggae music stays alive. Eh, también hay unas letras, ¿no? Con todo lo que 
Aside from the music, well, there's the words, the meaning, you know, all of the struggles that he had in reclaiming the rights of the people, defending people who had been manipulated and disempowered. And that, of course, adds value to his music. So I think that I witnessed a really special event at a time when that kind of event didn't often take place. I mean, that was a time when these big concerts were just starting, in Barcelona at least. I think the first concert I went to was either Jethro Tull or, or Leonard Cohen. Every time I went to a concert, which was, I guess, every couple of months, well, it felt like a major happening. When you're working and you're seeing an artist that you like, such as Bob, well, for me, the most electrifying moment is when the concert starts, when you think to yourself, wow, he's standing there right in front of me, right there. That's, you know, the moment of ecstasy. And then they start singing the numbers that you recognize and love. So the start of the concert is always the special part for me. And I guess that back then, Bob was much better known. We had the privilege of really following the artist and that was really important. It made the job much more rewarding and enjoyable. And all in all, I can definitely say photographing Bob was one of my best ever jobs. finish with the track from an album that Time magazine named album of the century in 1999 and that Bob also wrote in exile in London shortly after he was attacked by gunmen in Jamaica. 
Exodus ties together the biblical story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt in the hope of Rastafarians to be led to freedom. It feels like a fitting end to today's podcast, just like it was a perfect 15-minute ending to the show. Because right now, many people in this world don't feel free, just like Bob didn't, being forced to flee his home. But one love, a track, Bob didn't actually play in Ibiza, came from this album. And if you think he can be so full of love, so full of hope and full of forgiveness, then... I think so can we. Every day.